we pray as we consider your words to us in 1 Thessalonians, that they would be life and truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ray Galea, who some of you might know, he was um, previously the rector at uh, Multicultural Bible Ministries, MBM at Ruti Hill, and, and he's now ministering in Dubai. He wrote an excellent little book on the Psalms called God is Enough. And I'm going to start today by reading his introduction where he says this. I think I'm coming out of a six-year midlife crisis. I hope so anyway. I think the midlife crisis hits the moment you realise you're not going to achieve whatever goals in life you have set yourself, whether consciously or not. Time has run out. It's not going to happen. As a pastor of God's flock, I feel I should somehow be above such things. It's tragic how superficial my unfulfilled goal is. I want a big church. 1,000 people will do nicely. But deep down, I don't think it's going to happen. Now, knowing Ray only a little, deep down, I reckon it could happen. And actually, I think it might have already happened in Dubai. But it's an interesting and vulnerable disclosure, isn't it? Success for him is connected to his job. I reckon that's normal for a lot of us. But a successful ministry equals one that's big, right? A thousand people will do nicely. Successful ministry equals a big ministry, and when Ray caught himself thinking that, he was embarrassed. Now, maybe he should have been, but isn't it true that most of us will look at ministries and churches that are large and think, man, they've got it together? That ministry must be pleasing to God. And depending upon how we think of ourselves here, we can either think, well, we must be pleasing to God too, or, well, we're not that successful, so maybe we're not pleasing to God. Now, this is the sort of question that confronts us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says to the fledgling Thessalonian church, baby Christians, you know that our visit to you was not without results. Or in other versions, you know our visit was not a failure. So what kind of church does God think is successful? What kind of ministry does he think is a failure? And what does a ministry that pleases God look like? And what might that mean for us as contributors and recipients of that ministry? They're the questions before us tonight. This is our second week in this neat little New Testament book known as 1 Thessalonians. It's one of the earliest documents in the uh, New Testament. And I think it's intriguing because the Thessalonian church was formed by the Apostle Paul after a visit of just three weeks, perhaps. And it's encouraging because we saw last Sunday this fledgling church really seems to be having a good crack at living the Christian life despite opposition. They seem to be the genuine article, the real deal, forged and formed under considerable pressure. Now, our series graphics here, they highlight those three words, faith, hope and love, that are kind of ideas repeated throughout the book. But a tagline to the series could be, pleasing God while we wait, because that really is the theme of the book. Like, how do we please God while we wait for Jesus to return? How do we please God while we wait? And specifically today, what does a ministry that pleases God look like? Now, to help us answer that question from 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm going to arrange things under four headings. You can see them in your outline. Message, motives, method, and impact. Now, I know that impact is not actually a word, unless you're a Kiwi, right? For example, hey, Jared. Could you pick up a cappuccino when you got the fish and chips? That would have a big impact on my lunch. <laughs> Message, motives, methods, and impact. It's not a typo. 
So firstly then, why was the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, why was it not a failure? Why was it not without results? Because despite any appearances, they proclaimed the authentic gospel message. Let's read about that in verse 2. We'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. You know, in the background story to this church in Acts 17, Paul and his travelling companions, Silas and Timothy, they had a rough time in Thessalonica. Perhaps they'd only been teaching there those three weekends before some Jews in that town rounded up some troublemakers to form a, a lynch mob, started a riot in the city, pinned the blame fairly and squarely upon Paul and his friends. And it was so dangerous that these new believers had to bundle Paul and Silas off to the next town called Berea under the cover of night. Now, when the Thessalonian Jews realised that Paul had gone to the next town and was doing the same thing there, well, they did the same thing to him there. And so he had to flee to the coast and then go down to Athens. And the Thessalonian Christians in this baby little church, they would have been across the details, but still in verse 2, the Apostle Paul references what had happened to him in Philippi, like even before he got to Thessalonica. Like he, it, it, he's very vulnerable and he openly admits that he had been humiliated there. And in fact, Acts chapter 16 tells us that they were stripped naked, they were beaten badly, they were flogged severely, they were jailed unjustly. Like theirs is not a ministry that was covered in glory. There's not like a Netflix doco crew that is following these guys around. It looked like a failure. And yet he says in verse 2, and this is the key phrase, with God's help we dare to tell you about his gospel. Because it is, it's God's gospel. The message of good news that Thomas was talking about that originates and belongs to God because it is his plan for the salvation of humanity which culminates in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's not a message that comes from Paul and his chums that's been finely tuned and neatly packaged. It comes from God. It's God's gospel, his message. And so it doesn't really matter if there is opposition or if there is no opposition. A ministry that pleases God foremostly is a ministry that proclaims his gospel as simply, as clearly, as accurately and as energetically as possible. Now, friends, as Christians, we need to do good deeds. We have got to give ourselves to justice initiatives. We've got to be a part of social goods of all kinds. And I don't know how to do that in Northbridge, man, because people seem like they've got it all here. But I do know that Christian belief without compassion is a very hollow thing. And as Christians, we need to grow in our godliness and our personal morality. Otherwise, no one will see the Lord. But those are both responses to the message. They're not the message itself. And yet many Christians confuse it. The message is the good news that both individually and collectively, our sins and shortcomings can be forgiven because of the obedient life and sacrifice of Jesus so that we can be on right terms and in right relationship with God. It is a wonderful, wonderful message. But without a commitment to that message, a ministry, a gospel ministry, cannot please God. Okay, so message, it's key. But secondly also, motives count. A gospel ministry that pleases God is one in which motives are pure. And we can see that if we start reading from verse 3. 
The Apostle Paul says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that our motives count. It's not just about reading the script and who really cares what's going on in your heart. A ministry that pleases God will be motivated by a desire to please him. Now, you might be thinking, well, what other motivations are there? Well, we just read there in verses 3 to 5, like impure motives. It's probably a reference to motivations for sexual gratification. Not uncommon in that culture for visiting speakers to avail themselves of temple prostitutes. There's uh, furthermore the motivation of greed. You can see in verse 5, that that might be a temptation. Again, a very normal thing in that culture for visiting speakers and orators to use flattery and fine words in order to make a handsome speaker's fee. Now, maybe that's what Paul was being accused of by detractors in Thessalonica. Maybe that's why he needed to include that line at all. Paul, you, you just wanted our money, and then you bailed. But it's not as though these issues aren't current today, is it? So on Instagram, um, I, when I dip in from time to time, I follow an account called Preachers and Sneakers. Now, if you know Preachers and Sneakers, it, it basically looks at photographs of very high-profile um, American and British preachers and works out how much their sneakers cost. So here's one of Pastor Sean Johnson. You can see he's wearing white Nikes that cost 630 bucks. And I had another slide that, um, that I think... Um, I lost somewhere, and it showed another pastor wearing a Versace T-shirt, almost as bold and cool as Izzy's pants tonight, <laughs> that cost $775 for a T-shirt. And he matched it with Versace ankle boots that cost $2,000. And, and, like, do you think it's even remotely possible that greed could be a motivator to some in Christian ministry? Isn't it true that it's so often putting to people who look upon Christians and go, he's just here for the money. Now, friends, for me, uh, the temptation is not so much about money, although I'm embarrassed to admit that I must love it because I worry about it a lot. For me, it's the temptation to speak in such a way that I will be liked by people. So I don't think I'm motivated in Christian ministry by impure sexual motives nor by cash per se, although I've got to keep testing my own heart. But in the words of verse 4, I do find myself overly concerned by pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Or in the words of verse 6, I find myself, I can find myself looking for praise from people because I like people and I want them to like me back. And it must have been a real live temptation because the Apostle Paul mentions it twice. And yet he can confidently say to the Thessalonians, perhaps also to his detractors, we didn't do that. We weren't like that. We weren't motivated by error or trickery, or flattery, or deceit, or greed, not even by a desire for human praise. We're motivated by a desire to please God. Now, friends, isn't that what you want to be like as well? Paul says we've, we've been proven to be entrusted by God to proclaim his gospel. He tests our hearts. He is our witness. He knows. And so we see that a successful ministry is one that's motivated by his desire to please God amongst the full range of competing motivations. 
Well, next we turn to the idea of method, and that is just to say that a ministry that pleases God is going to have a certain methodology that's more up close and personal rather than stand and deliver, command and control. Now, during that reading that Marlene brought to us, you would have noticed, you would have heard the accumulation of family metaphors as the Apostle Paul described his interactions, his ministry method amongst the Thessalonians. We were like little children among you. Do you remember him saying that? In verse 7 and 8, we were like young nursing mums in the way that we cared for you and shared with you. In verse 11 and 12, we were like encouraging fathers among you. And I, I, I imagine that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they could have waltzed into town with a sense of entitlement, both ordering these Thessalonians around and demanding a living from them, but they worked night and day to support themselves, presumably in their own trades as uh, well as teaching the gospel. And I guess if they set up shop permanently there and things kind of grew, someone might have needed to turn it into a full-time gig because I've got to tell you, man, churches do not organise themselves. But the point of them being bivocational, I guess, is so that nothing gets in the way of become, or becomes a stumbling block to the Thessalonians' reception of the gospel message. But still, they could have pulled rank and kind of asserted their authority, and yet they were gentle. They could have just presented their lectures and left, but they cared for the Thessalonians, sharing their lives with them like a caring mum. They could have kept a polite distance but they loved the Thessalonians. It was up close and personal. And they could have been harsh, but they were like an encouraging father. I know it's Mother's Day, but it's an interesting insight into God's take on uh, our role as fathers, to encourage and comfort and urge rather than criticise, exasperate or withdraw from our children. But the Apostle Paul and his companions were like that with the Thessalonians. It was gentle and it was proximate. You know, it was caring and encouraging. It wasn't removed and onerous or discouraging or disinterested. Um, when I, in my first kind of uh, ministry job, uh, I worked with teenagers and we used to take school leavers, those who finished year 12, to Vanuatu where we'd do some building work at an indigenous Bible college in the jungle and then uh, sit on an impossibly beautiful beach like this one. In fact, it wasn't like this one, it was this one, for a few days at the end, because some of us, you do have to suffer for the kingdom, don't you? <laughs> uh, we thought it was better to take the kids to, to do that sort of stuff than um, for them to go to the Gold Coast. But for me, right, the most enjoyable part of the whole trip, it wasn't sitting on the impossibly beautiful beach at the end. It was working side by side with local Nevan dudes. And one morning we were mixing concrete to make... Um, building blocks and they, I just thought they had this ingenious way of doing it where they'd pile up the sand and cement into kind of a heap and then they'd slowly pour water into the top and one of our guys would mix it with a shovel and then one of their guys would mix it with a shovel and we'd take it turns and I thought this is so cool we are like making concrete the traditional primitive Nevan way together until later that afternoon, I saw a broken mechanical cement mixer lying under a mango tree. <laughs> and I asked them about it and they said, yeah, that's the way that we normally do it, but we haven't got around to fixing it just yet. And I was so deflated, so disappointed, got ripped off. But, you know, I, um, I was really glad that we had that time mixing the concrete together because it wasn't efficient. It was so much better than efficient, right? It was close. It was close. And I just think you'll find the ministries that make a difference in people's lives won't often be stand and deliver, stadium crowd, 
live streaming big screen experience. Man, I don't want to be belligerent about that because you can theologize to justify any size ministry, but but I do think it'll be the ministries where we get alongside one another, where you can see the difference the message makes in one another's lives at ground level that involves the sharing of lives as well as the sharing of a message. That seems to be the method here, the Apostle Paul's personal ministry that pleased God. So there you go. We've had message and we've had motive and we've had method. And finally, impact. What is the impact of a ministry that pleases God? Well, as we saw last week, the the impact of a ministry is that people receive the message and they persevere with it. So let's read verse 13 and 14 together. When you received the word of God, he says, which you heard from us, you Thessalonians accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. You see, when you've got a ministry that centers on the gospel message, when it's proclaimed by people who are motivated by a desire to please God, when it's enacted in a gentle, personal manner, you are likely to see a ministry that has an impact in which people receive the message as it truly is. The word of God, not just human words. And furthermore, you see churches like these Thessalonians persevere with that message in spite of severe suffering. The Thessalonian church, they suffer from their fellow Thessalonians. What the Judean churches, that's the guys in Jerusalem, suffer from the Jews. Opposition, strife, persecution. Apostle Paul goes on to say that the Jews, and remember he was one ethnically speaking, very often opposed the plans of God. You remember in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, they killed the prophets God sent to them. In the time of Jesus, they killed him alongside the Romans. And in the ministry of Paul, they did what they could to prevent him from proclaiming this good news to the non-Jewish world. But the main point for us today, like we saw last week, is that these Thessalonians stuck with it through great difficulties. Well, that is the impact of a ministry that pleases God. That's the kind of fruit of such, that such a ministry bears. Now, of course, as we finish, we've got to work out, well, what are we meant to make of these words and how should they shape our Christian lives and, and our ministry here at St Mark's? And maybe it could be helpful for us to think through what this means for those who undertake gospel ministry. So you might call that section, what does this mean for Scott, Pat, Step, Kath, or a whole bunch of us here at St Mark's. But we also need to think through what does this mean for all of us as recipients, as beneficiaries of gospel ministry. So what does this mean for us all? So let's start firstly with what does this mean for Scott or anyone who's involved in a gospel ministry? You're leading a home group, what does it mean for you? You're helping at a live, having conversations with youth, what does it mean for you? You're volunteering in kids' church, teaching scripture, what does it mean for you? Well, we need to think through message motives and methods so i and many of you as well need to continue to proclaim that message about jesus and the salvation and restoration that's only available because of his perfectly obedient life his sacrificial death and his magnificent resurrection from the dead which provides not only forgiveness of sins but a way back into right relationship with god 
There are pressures to preach other messages. There is certainly a pressure to dilute the clear, simple and beautiful message of the gospel or at the very least to avoid aspects of it that can make us feel uncomfortable. Right? Judgment, hell, etc. Do not let me do that to avoid those bits even when they make us feel uncomfortable. I will frequently need to examine my motivations for bringing this gospel message to bear upon the congregations here at St Mark's. I have to check myself, you know. Do I do it just because it allows me to enjoy life in leafy Northbridge or whatever remaining kudos is attached to being a senior minister in the 21st century or being the guy who gets to stand at the microphone, whatever it is. I've got to keep checking and adjusting and aligning my motivations with a simple desire to please God, and and so might you. And it may not be possible for me to be in close proximity to everyone, but in methodology, I've got to make sure that at least some people, I'm in close proximity to some people, that I do for some what what I'd love to do for us all, which is to not stand and deliver, but to stand alongside you and labor and toil and work hard, but not at a distance from you. It's funny, um, in my last church I used to stack chairs, the chairs in the back row before the afternoon service, before the 5pm service, so that the young punks could have room for supper after the night church service. There's nothing amazing about doing that. I've done that I think every week during my whole ministry life. I reckon Pat does it every week, Steph, everyone. Nothing remarkable at all. But one of the female singers saw me do this while she was rehearsing for the service and she was astonished that the minister stacked the chairs. (laughs) I don't think that's astonishing, but in her previous churches, the minister was only ushered in to do the talk and then he was ushered back out to the green room to sit on the couch and to watch everything else on the big screen. And no one ever saw him at ground level. And you just think, it doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right. So we need to be careful with the message, with our motives, with our methods too, and then we can expect the impact to follow. And moreover, we'll have a ministry that pleases God whatever the impact. And that applies to all of us here who serve at Kids Church, who lead home groups, who serve in the youth ministry, parish council, who sing and who lead at service, and so on and so on. Right? Message, motives, methods. But what does it mean for all of us who receive or benefit from a ministry that pleases God? I mean, you can rightly expect that of me, but I think it means we all need to be receptive to any ministry that's conducted by people who proclaim the gospel clearly and simply and energetically. And it doesn't matter if they don't have a podcast audience of 10,000, right, or a church of 1,000. Where you've got a home group leader or a youth group leader or a musician who's motivated by a basic desire to please God rather than draw attention to themselves, we ought to be receptive to what they might say, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, to breathe for a moment before we press the outrage button so quickly at something they say. You know, where it's clear that someone engaged in the gospel ministry does not think of herself as better than the people that she's serving, but who is gentle and encouraging and giving of herself. We ought to be people who listen to her well. And if those involved in gospel ministry need to be careful about the message and motive and method, that I reckon we as the beneficiaries of their labours ought to be receptive of that ministry amongst us, just as the Thessalonians were receptive to the Apostle Paul's. We want to we look at our own lives and ask ourselves, am I bearing fruit 
Like, is this making a difference in my life? Am I receiving this ministry as though it were words from God? Or am I complaining because I didn't like the illustration? Because the joke was lame. Because the sermon went for two minutes too long. Because the PowerPoint lacked creativity. Because they didn't do it exactly how I'd do it. Because they, they didn't say it the way I'd say it. They didn't use that word. That would have been the perfect word, wouldn't it? And they didn't use it. Am I sticking with this gospel message? Am I persevering with it? Even if I'm ridiculed by my wider culture. Even if I'm tempted to ditch it by the remnants of the sinful nature within me. Even if I just want to give up because right now I'm finding it very hard. Those who bring the gospel message, well, we need to ask questions of ourselves, our motives, our methods frequently. But the rest of us, we all need to ask questions of ourselves. Am I receptive to this well-motivated ministry? Am I persevering with this word? Because, friends, if the answer is yes, then we all might just have a ministry that pleases God. Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father, God, last week we thanked you for the example of the Thessalonians. Tonight we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for his commitment to your message. It's your message, it's not ours. We thank you for his pure motivations and we ask that ours might be as well. We thank you for his personal methodology and, and forgive us and prevent us from ever feeling like we shouldn't get close to people. And I pray as recipients of gospel ministry, you'd always be encouraging us to be receptive to ones that match your message, your motives and your methods. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.